0: You're listening to an adult Sunday school class at Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at
1: RedeemerOhio.org. All right, so we continue our study in the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, And this morning we're going to be looking together at chapter 30. So we've only got three more chapters after this. We've really made some good progress. But before we look into it, then let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you as the one who created the sun and the earth and everything in the universe and all of it declares your glory And this morning, we're grateful that you've given us another day to live and to worship and to fellowship. We pray that as we consider your church and how you govern her, that you would bless our discussion, that the Lord Jesus would be honored, that the Holy Spirit would guide us and sanctify us and help us to prepare for heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, last time... We looked together at chapter 29 and we were talking about the Lord's Supper. And I think, if I'm correct, the last section in 29 dealt with those who were unworthy to partake of the supper. And so this morning, the confession goes on logically to discuss what happens with unworthy, um, unworthiness and inability to partake of the supper. So we're talking about church censures. In 25, the divine said that Jesus Christ is the head of the universal church, the only king and head of the church. In section 2 of 25, it said the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if somebody asks you, where would I see the lordship of Christ displayed, we could point to the church and say, this is where we gladly bend the knee and confess with the tongue that he is Lord. Everybody's going to do that at one time or another, but we do it gladly here, Lord willing. Section 6, there is no other head of the church but the Lord Jesus Christ. So he is governing the visible church. And no human society can subsist without government, and it's true of the church, just like any other human society. And some think that no particular form of government has been appointed by Christ for his church, which would be absurd. If he is the king and he's governing the church, he's going to appoint some form of government. They believe he's left it to be framed according to the wisdom and circumstances of men, which again would be silly because as a king, his will is applied, not the fallible and finite wisdom of fallen man. King Jesus would not leave his church without that which is essential to all human societies. He presented himself, we're told, alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. So this is the resurrected Christ appearing to his disciples. And Luke says, he appeared to them during 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. 40 days, and he's teaching them about the kingdom. And part of that discussion, I'm sure, was dealing with the visible church and how to govern it. Now, there is a, a school of thought called Erastianism, <clears throat> after an English man named Erastus, which claims that the external government of the church belongs to the civil magistrate. Uh, The supreme head of the church is the queen, mother of the Church of England, and she, well, she's a figurehead now, I think, but historically, Henry VIII had that power. It asserts that the church is an organ of the state, and its officers are subject to its government. So the church officers have their place, have their function, but ultimately, the real authority of the church is in the hands of the state. It says that church officers proclaim the word and administer sacraments, but they do not exercise discipline. That's for the magistrate. So the divines are dealing with this as they write chapter 30. That's in the background of their thinking. The Lord Jesus, as king and head of his church, has therein appointed a government in the hand of church officers distinct from the civil magistrate. And so they are distinguishing between these two realms. The magistrate has his authority over his realm, and the church officer has his authority over Christ's realm. He's the king who not only saves his bride, he exercises authority over the church. God says, as for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And we have to recognize that in the Psalms, when it talks about Zion, that's a representation of the church. God's church has been around since Eden. And so he has set his king over the church. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Christ is ruling. The God-man as mediatorial king has appointed a government by which he rules to the end of time. So it's not unimportant. You know, we might think church polity is relatively insignificant. And I think in our day, the visible church has been relegated to irrelevance. You know, it's kind of nice to get together, but it's really not that important. As long as I have my private devotions, that's what's key. And private devotions are important, don't get me wrong. But the visible church is the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. He rules. He does this by his providence and his spirit through those to whom he delegates ecclesiastical authority, the church officers. In the larger catechism, number 45, it says Christ executes the office of a king in calling out of the world a people to himself. It's visible. And giving them officers, laws, and censures by which he visibly governs them. Censures, those things which he uses to discipline and train his people. Though his kingdom is in the world, it's totally and specifically distinct from every other kingdom. It's another worldly kingdom, as Jesus himself says My kingdom is not of this world. There's something absolutely unique about the kingdom of the Lord Jesus. Because it's a spiritual kingdom. And he rules not by the sword. He rules by his word and spirit. Remember, uh, which psalm is it? Somebody, maybe Nate can help me. But it's, uh, in the day of your power, your people will uh, offer freely their worship. I'm not quoting it, but that's what it means. God's power by the Holy Spirit reigns in the heart of his people, and we freely submit to him. And he's a benevolent king. (laughs) He's sovereign, but he's good. Thank God that he's both sovereign and good. If he was just sovereign, we better be afraid, but he's good, kind, merciful, so in section one, this is what section one said, and we say that he rules and teaches by his word and spirit, and he does this especially through the standing ministry. Let me stop and see if any questions at this point, any, any thoughts or concerns. Okay. John?
2: Um, I am thinking historically, the first few centuries, it seems to very, very much push to get into bishops, where there was like heads of the church, um, do you know when that was? That it seems like in, the, in Acts they talk about the council of elders meeting to make decisions. But very quickly, went shortly after that, went divisions, visions. You know about anything about the history of that, or is that a different? Is that a different one?
1: No, no. I I've read it. <clears throat> I don't remember the dates. It's four, five, sixth century A.D. That the bishop, bishop of Rome, bishop of Constantinople, they began to assess and assume power. Right? This is what happens to fallen human beings, even in the church. And so, yeah, I mean, they took that term bishop in the New Testament and ascribed that to an office when, in fact, bishop and presbyter are used interchangeably. They're elders. Plurality of elders. So, you know, I think there were some good men who served as bishops. Good, godly men. But I disagree with placing that office above the other elders. So he rules and teaches by his word and spirit. It is another worldly kingdom. He delegates spiritual authority to his under shepherds and places responsibility on them. Obey your leaders, the apostle says, and this is to all God's people. Obey your leaders and submit to them. Why? Because they're keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So it's almost like a marriage. You know, the officers and God's people come together for the same purpose, to glorify Christ. And we do this in conjunction with each other, cooperating so that we can experience joy. Now, if the officers lord it over God's people, there's no joy. If God's people grumble and complain, there's no joy. So it's a cooperative effort. Obey your leaders and submit to them in all things spiritual, under the word. As I said, I've said, i said oftentimes in membership interviews, do you have to do everything we tell you? Don't say yes, because you don't. Anything that's in the word of God, and we declare that, yes. But anything else, no. And I think sometimes... With the whole bishop discussion, sometimes we officers usurp and assume too much authority. It's got to be in accord with God's word. So he provides his church with a system of doctrine, government, discipline, and worship. He gives his church everything that we need. Everything. He hasn't left it to the whims of sinful man. And since he ascended to heaven, he rules by officers who are chosen by the people of God. That's the power of the church. You get to choose those who rule over you. Nobody can impose that upon you, at least in our system of government. When they had appointed elders (laughs) for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they believed. That's supposed to be Greek. And I forgot that this doesn't have the... uh, the font. So that's a weird looking word. Um, But the word itself that's translated appointed means literally stretch forth the hand, reach the hand, which means electing the officers when they had elected the elders in every church. So it's the power of God's people to elect those. They recognize those upon whom God has put a call And they don't elect those whom they don't believe God has called. That's very important. It's coming up for our church. It's a very important part of the church. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commands of men, thankfully. We're not bound to embrace or submit to anything, anything that is contrary to the word of God. Anything I say to you needs to be backed up by the Word of God. In matters of faith and worship, especially, we're free from whatever is not governed by the Word of God, it has to be rooted in this inspired book. Any questions on the first section so far? Oh, I'm sorry, Allison?
0: Is it Hebrews 13, 17? Don't you make a connection with that verse to? worthiness of taking the table. This Absolutely.
1: Yes. Well, this and very good. I'm glad you asked that this is a command. It's not a suggestion. It's not pious advice. It's a command. And for us to have a credible profession of faith, anybody can say they love Jesus. But he says, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments, right? So here's a command And if you refuse to associate yourself with the visible church under his lordship, submitting to his appointed officers, there's no credibility. So why would you refuse to do this? If you love Jesus and this is him ruling over his church, join, you know, and partake of the supper. Whatever it is that keeps you from coming to this table, resolve that. Profess your faith, join the church, and come to the table, you know. But it's not given indiscriminately. The table is not to be given to swine. Don't cast your pearls before the swine. This is a pearl. This is a treasure. The supper is to be guarded, enjoyed, given freely to God's people, but not to the world. It's not a converting ordinance. It's an assurance of what God has promised in His Word. Well, We acknowledge the spirituality of the church, which, as Jesus said, is not of this world. It's called out of the world to bear witness to the truth, particularly the gospel. Now, you might say, well, isn't the whole word the gospel? Well, in a sense, yes. The whole Bible is good news. But the gospel specifically is the fact that Jesus came to die for the sins of his people. And we bear witness to that truth. And insofar as the church fails to do that, she becomes a false church, a synagogue of Satan. Insofar as she does that faithfully, she honors her king. We're heralds. That's what we are. The church has been established by the Lord Jesus Christ, not by any human authority. So this is not just a human institution. This is not just made out of the convenience of men and women. Jesus established the church. The king appointed a government. This is why we join the church, primarily because he told us to. When he commands something, (laughs) we do it. She's not secular or worldly in her nature, a spiritual institution, in her objects, God's people and the glory of Christ, her goal, glorifying God, her tools, the word, the sacraments, We don't take your bank account. We don't, you know, take back your car. We don't put you in prison. He's given us tools that are spiritual in nature. And she is an otherworldly institution whose laws, ordinances, discipline, penalties, and purpose are all spiritual. And so we say that Jesus has delegated to the church authority that is ministerial and declarative. We serve And we declare. That's what the church does. And insofar as we go beyond that, we're disobeying Christ. Uh, Derek?
3: When you say the church isn't a human institution, I think, I guess the question is sometimes denominations would be human institutions, but as the church as a whole, it's not a human institution. I guess I'm trying to figure out... The delineation Sometimes there's confusion,
1: I like. Yeah, good, good point. I, when I say not a human institution, I think by that I meant it doesn't originate with humanity, and it doesn't derive its authority from humanity. It originates in heaven. My kingdom is not of this world. It originates in heaven. The church has been in the mind of God from eternity. And it's governed not by humanity. It's Christ, the king who governs. So this is his institution, but we're all humans. So it's made up of humans. Yeah, uh, uh, Jared.
0: So when you're looking back into early American history, for instance, and you have Protestant denominations, you know, combining those kingdoms and having other Protestants put in jail for preaching, uh baptism versus, etc. Um, do you see that as obviously scripturally wrong? Because this is really a relatively new time in history. Typically, the church and the state were very much in lockstep. I guess how do we... Oftentimes, yeah. How do we justify our position today?
1: Yeah, it's biblically, hopefully. Um, And the church, let's face it, humanity is sinful, and the church has made many, many mistakes throughout the centuries, and we should not be throwing people into prison. We should not be executing them for their disagreement with us on doctrine. Many, many episodes in church history that are less than optimal to be tactful. Um, I think that if we go back to scriptures, which is what we're trying to do and trying to be obedient to our king, this is what he says. This is another worldly institution. I have no authority over you materially, physically, financially, none of that. I am trying to persuade To implore people to come to Christ and to submit willingly, you know. But yeah, bad things, Mark.
2: You know, I think it's helpful, uh, kind of tying into Jared's question, to think of the Crusades. Yeah. Pick up the sword.
1: Yeah. Or today, maybe a a modern church, they're defined by their soup kitchen. Right.
3: You know, there's nothing declarative going on. So people, um, you know, commit the sin of omission, not declaring,
2: or they're grabbing power like they, they tried to do through faith and that uh, church history is replete with mistakes on
1: both sides. Of it. That's right. Exactly. So we're trying to be faithful and we believe this is what scripture teaches and the authority that it gives to us and no more. And this is one of the reasons why <clears throat> those attempts to say well the church is going to change culture. The culture warriors. Well I think what Jesus means is that when the church is doing its job, if it's serving and declaring the gospel, that will have an effect upon culture. But to say that we are going to go and change culture, that's going to be our focus, that goes way beyond the purpose of the church. Or government. Throwing people into prison or you know, executing them at the stake or whatever the case may be. John? Um. I referenced the Two Kingdoms book by David Van Gruden. And actually there's a copy
2: of it in the church library. And I've read that and found it helpful because this was confusing in my mind. That's, that was a compelling argument. Right. Um, the Living God's Two Kingdoms by David Van Gruden.
3: Right.
1: Very, very good book. Uh, I, can't, I can't go into the whole thesis right now. But <clears throat> this idea that Jesus has the spiritual kingdom and there is a the common grace kingdom, the two things, and he's ruling over both, but his redemptive kingdom is expressed through the church and the preaching of the gospel. He's doing his work, and it's working. I was just thinking, like having come from Alberta, where multiple pastors were put into prison for not submitting
2: to the government. Right. I feel like the the confession is clear that the church has its authority from Christ. Right. The king and he he's the one that says how his church is ruled, and we shouldn't be allowing the government to say
3: this is how the church should be doing things. Um, so I guess I just wanted to say I appreciate the the emphasis on this is his church and he's the king and he says how it's ruled. That's right.
1: In the church, he is the king. He makes the rules. At the same time, um, as Christians submitting to Christ, he tells us to submit, in all lawful things, to the civil magistrate. We should be the best citizens in the country, the most obedient. When the commands of the civil magistrate are contrary to the commands of King Jesus, we obey Christ. So, I think that's part of what happened, maybe. But yeah, I mean, he definitely is the one who makes the rules in the church. We're thankful for that. We have authority to declare Christ's revealed will, to administer the ordinances. We have no discretion whatsoever to frame our own laws, invent ordinances, or establish institutions of our own. None. We're under the authority of a king. This is not a democracy. He doesn't take our suggestions into a... He's a king. We can't meddle in civil affairs. We simply proclaim and enforce the word of Christ. Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That's from the lips of Jesus himself. The difficulty comes in interpreting which things are Caesar's and which things are Christ's, right? Uh, We might disagree on some of the fringe, but... We understand that there are two different realms there. <clears throat> types of church government, many of you have seen this in our membership class, but there are three types of church government. Hierarchical, which I'll call the dictator. The authority is governed to govern is lodged in one individual, the bishop. The Anglican rector governs a parish, <clears throat> and the Anglican bishop governs a diocese, many churches. And he has authority himself. He alone is essential to the ordination of an officer. There's no appeal to an assembly of elders, but only to the individual in charge. If he doesn't like you, I I can't imagine what would go on, right? Then there's the congregational, which I'll call the mob. (laughs) Uh, The authority to govern and appoint officers is lodged in the congregation as a whole. There is no appeal from the decision of the congregation, for its decision is always final. This was the problem that Jonathan Edwards ran into. The greatest preacher and theologian ever on American soil was voted out by his disgruntled church. (laughs) And he went to a little uh, Indian village 50 miles away, And in God's providence, that's where he wrote his greatest works. Aren't we thankful? But that's what happened. They voted Jonathan Edwards out. If it can happen to Jonathan Edwards, I don't want to be any part part of a congregational church. (laughs) When a disagreement arose in the early church, it was referred to the Assembly of Elders, Acts 15. The strength of the church waxes and wanes depending on the makeup of the congregation in a congregational model. Ernie Miller always joked, why don't we, because we, we were renting space, and so we wanted a building, right? So he would always say, let's go downtown Twinsburg and join the Congregational Church, and we'll vote them out. <laughs> we'll take over, right? It was tongue-in-cheek, I hope. And <clears throat> representative, the court. The authority to govern is lodged in a plurality of elders who serve as representatives of Christ.
3: <clears throat>
1: Not of us. Of Christ. The elders are not accountable to us, but to Christ. That's important. The representatives of Jesus. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, they committed them to the Lord. I left you in Crete that that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Notice the emphasis on order. Things are done decently and in order. It's like a family. We are a family. If things in your home are chaotic, and disorderly, what happens? Nothing good. If things are decent and orderly, things happen. Good things. Same with the church. We're a family. Things are to be done decently and in order. Not aridly, not unfeelingly, but decently, orderly. Any questions on section one? On the ch- types of government? Okay. Um, a presbyter is an ordained elder in the church. That's where Presbyterian comes from. A presbyter, that's a Greek term that means an elder, simply. It's governed by a plurality of presbyters who share spiritual authority. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider the matter. very important matter in the early church. And all of these officers came together and decided the matter. Do not neglect the gift you have, Timothy, which was given to you by prophecy when the council of elders... Literally, the presbytery laid their hands on you. So recently, we've seen some ordinations: uh, Pastor um, Pyland and there was oh, uh, David Doty. Those two ordinations, uh, the presbytery ordained them, but the laying on of hands and it conferred authority to serve as an officer. It's not by a hierarchy in which authority is invested in one. It's not by the congregation with the mob. It's a plurality of elders with complementary gifts under Christ's headship. And there's a gradation of courts. And these courts provide accountability for all as well as opportunities for appeal. If you don't like the decision made by the session of elders here, there's an authority you can appeal to. We submit to the presbytery. So that's good. because even a plurality of elders doesn't always guarantee just government. There's a situation going on now, which I can't comment on, but a local church running roughshod over an individual who granted, sinned, but it's done terribly. And this individual is going to be scarred for life. It's an awful situation, and the appeal would be to the presbytery who oversees that session. And if the presbytery fails, which it looks like it's going to, you can go to the General Assembly, like the Supreme Court, which it should, it should go there. I'm not sure it's going to, but we'll see. The system, this system, Presbyterianism, best addresses the matter of human depravity. Let's face it, we're depraved. If given the opportunity, we'll usurp authority. We get mad at one another. We're vindictive by nature. We're resentful by nature. So this has checks and balances, which it hinders that. If I get mad at Caleb, which I can never do. The guy's a really nice guy. (laughs) But if I get mad at Caleb as an officer, I might be so vindictive, I want out for him. And my elders would come around and say, no, 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 no way. He's a good man. You need to repent. Talking about me. So it's, it's a system that best addresses the matter of human depravity. I exhort the, exhort the elders among you, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. Any, any other questions on section one? <coughs> Laura? When and why did some churches allow women to be elders? Don't know. I have no idea why they would do that. The question is why would some churches when and why would some churches allow women to be elders? And I think once you once you're not bound to scripture as the infallible word of God, well then you can interpret it in various ways, any way you want. Some of the churches would look at those passages that Paul is saying let not a woman exercise authority as culturally bound. Well, that was a patriarchal society. It worked then, but it doesn't apply now. And it's interesting that Paul oftentimes is doing that in the context of worship or rooting it back to creation and not just culturally bound. So this is one of the reasons why we broke fraternal relations with the CRC. Because they, they began to ordain women, but before that, they let go of sola scriptura. Yes, sir?
3: A verse I like to use in response to that is in Timothy. Titus showing the gifts of an elder lists a husband of one wife. It's difficult for a woman to do that.
1: Yeah, in our culture, you never know.
3: But... (laughs) (laughs) You're
1: you're exactly right. Very difficult for a woman to be a husband. Yeah. John?
2: It also, there's a number of other things we submit to. Sabbatarian laws and other rules if we're wanting just to try and figure out a, a good way to live life using scripture as a guide, kind of, sort of, then you want to try and be more more flexible and interpretive in applying it, or make a, like a megachurch model, or, or different, trying different models of church, um, and then I, it's, but there's, for me, it was a switch of thinking, oh, I actually need to submit to this. I don't know, I don't understand why, but I need to submit to it.
1: Yeah, ultimately, it comes down to that.
2: I can give some answers, but not always great answers to make me happy.
1: Right. And you're right. I mean, ultimately, that's the bottom line. We may not understand all the reasons why God made it this way. And as I've said oftentimes, there are some women who could preach me and teach me under the table. Very gifted. Why on earth would He not allow them to occupy office? I don't know. But. I believe that's what Scripture teaches, and if God says it, we're going to submit to it. So, um, church government—very important. Church. Oh, Nate.
3: Sorry, uh, I kind of wanted to look at ordination real quick. And what exactly? It seems like it's a big deal, but it's sort of this thing kind of happens in front of us. you don't know that was know what's going on. What's the importance of being
1: ordained? That is King Jesus working through his appointed officers to delegate spiritual authority to an individual. So it's the official, formal authorization of somebody to enter into office. Jesus himself didn't even occupy the office of mediator until God ordained him at his baptism. John's like, are you kidding me? I should be baptized by you. Let it be done now to fulfill all righteousness. I need to be ordained. God needs to set me apart. For this work and he did. If it happens to the Lord Jesus, it has to happen to us. You cannot enter into this office willy nilly, you must be ordained. Well, in our culture, all kinds of things are going on, you know. This is the way that King Jesus operates in his church.
3: Yeah, I kind of glad you brought in Christ's baptism, but the organization, the ordination, the actual action of it is something that's visible in front of the congregation but really in front of the world to to show that God is declaring this in the same way that Christ's baptism but it's something that's visible for the congregation to bring, as a congregation to see as a, as a body
1: yeah very good that's true it is visible and we in front do and see front of the world in front of the world we have to have a good testimony to the world it's
3: not done in the back room Right. it's done during the worship service in front of God's people
1: that's right No, that's a good point. Very good point. Church discipline to these officers, the keys of the kingdom of heaven are committed by virtue whereof they have power, respectively, to retain and remit sins. (gasps) Blasphemy. No, it's not blasphemy. It's true. To shut that kingdom against the impenitent, both by the word and censures, and to open it unto penitent sinners, by the ministry of the gospel and by absolution from censures, as occasion shall require. That's a mouthful. But this is the idea that Jesus is governing through his appointed government. The keys of the kingdom, contra-erastinism, the authority to inflict censures, and we're going to talk about those in a minute, lies with church officers. You are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Very important phrase. When a steward of the palace had keys, he was the one who let people in or shut the door to keep them out. That's the idea. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So the keys of the kingdom, the authority to preach the word, and ordination is wrapped up in this, and to administer the sacraments. The sacraments are the badges of membership in Christ. If you wear the sacrament, if you partake of the supper, if you're baptized, this is marking you out as belonging to Christ. Those to whom the keys are entrusted have authority to apply or remove the appointed censure. So if you are impenitent, then we can take back the privilege of the table, the supper, until such time as you repent. The authority was given to the Apostle Peter as representative of all the Apostles. This is where Roman Catholicism goes wrong. He's representative. How do I know that? Two chapters later, truly I say to y'all, to use Jason's expression, it's second person plural. Truly I say to you all, whatever you all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. The same exact language now discussed in the context of a plurality. So the keys of the kingdom given to Peter as representative are exercised by the plurality of the apostolate and elders in the church. John 20, if you all forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you all withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So the church is exercising authority by proclaiming the word Right? The word says, if you believe and repent, you're in. If you refuse to believe and repent, you're out. That's using the key. The supper, you give us a credible profession of faith, we welcome you to the table, you're in. You are impenitent, you refuse to repent of your sins, you can't come to the table, you're out. The keys every Sunday, I'll say, you know, what we talked about earlier. If you've been baptized, profess your faith, communicate membering and standing, come to the table. If not... This isn't for you. That's the key. It's a key. The purpose, to reclaim the gaining of offending brethren, deterring others from the like offenses, purging the leaven which might infect the whole, vindicating the honor of Christ and the holy profession of the gospel in the presence of the world watching, preventing the wrath of God, something we don't hear about very often which might justly fall upon the church if they should suffer his covenant and the seals thereof to be profaned by notorious and obstinate offenders. Some of you in Corinth are sick, and some have even died because you've come unworthily. You've profaned the supper. A church might refuse to practice discipline, but Jesus commanded us to do so. Some have argued that church discipline is unnecessary for various reasons that are entirely unacceptable. For example, well, if we do this, people will be offended and alienated. Let's just pray that the Spirit troubles their conscience. We don't want to do the awkward and hard work of discipline. And this is supposed to be loving and humble in contrast to sinful pride and arrogance. That's what they say. But it is disobedient. And hypocritical, it's not meant to alienate, but to reclaim the erring member, just like a father chastises his erring child so that he is restored to fellowship in the family. At stake, as well as the honor of Christ and the welfare of others, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. If we let sin run rampant, it'll destroy the church. John? It's
2: hard of the congregational model to do this, because it's often the person that is loved by the people will be needing to do something, say a divorce in case. And I've seen it tear apart church and the elders in the congregational model not be able to enforce it because of allegating and offending people and they're serving the they're serving at the behest of all the congregants. In the
1: yeah, no, that's right. I remember when we were uh, 25 years ago, we were small, <laughs> very small, church And um It's very tempting when you're small and you get like a visitor every three weeks to avoid offending and alienating people, right? Because we don't want to lose anybody. But thankfully, I had elders who were strong, and if we had the discipline, we did. Jared?
0: So I understand the theoretical concept here, but functionally, um, it seems a little bit cumbersome in the sense that how do you, how does the how does the church body function in such a way that you would even know, what you know the state of each other's situation? So I'll use the you know example from church where I grew up that a girl gets pregnant. Um, now there is public, right? Just you know, that's how that works, right? Right. Um, but the girl that. You know, the the girl and gal that were sexually active and didn't get pregnant, well, there was never public address. Right. So it seemed very capricious.
1: Well, that's Um, God's providence. I mean, she's not disciplined for being pregnant. Right. She's disciplined if she's impenitent. That's the key. So, you know, this happens, and we're all sinners, and we all make mistakes. And in this case, this young girl uh, got pregnant, okay, in God's providence, but she's not disciplined if there's repentance. We care for her. We love her. We welcome the covenant child into the church. We do everything we can to help the family, but discipline is only for impenitence, right? That's the key, or, or what the confession calls contumacy. Yeah, old-fashioned word. So... Do
2: you th- examples in the PCA? that not necessarily here, but just cross up
3: situations you've heard of that how it might maybe where they were were, excommunicated from the church or they repented and brought back any examples of
1: that that yeah one I often use maybe you've heard it before uh, faith church in Akron 30 years ago a guy was he just left the church he was fed up with it just walked away wouldn't fulfill his vows they excommunicated him 20 years later he gets a diagnosis of of a, a curable disease And the first thing that comes to his mind, I need to get right with Jesus and his church. Came back to the church, repented, was restored, and died. Wonderful, right? Twenty years it took, but the censure was there. Thank God that faith administered the censure, right? Because he never would have done that if it hadn't been for the censure. It reclaimed the erring sinner, and it vindicated the honor of Christ. So... Another argument would be, am I missing? Okay. We should not judge or be judgmental. We too are sinners, it's said. And so we're unqualified to judge others. Not so. Not so. Christ entrusted the keys of the church and the kingdom and commanded us to wield them. Yes, we're fallible. Yes, we make mistakes. Some are put out that shouldn't be put out, and some are kept out that should be let in. We make mistakes. Why King Jesus uses fallible human beings to do this, I don't know. But he commands us to use them, and discipline does not judge the heart. It judges the profession and the conduct. We're not saying we're judging your heart or your salvation. We're just judging your conduct and your profession of faith. Let Jesus deal with your salvation. Yes?
3: I like how you use the word wield there. That preference sword in the armor of God. That's the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word. Right. And elders wield the Word. That's right. In discipline and in uh, situations of encouragement or discussing with members. It's always the word brought forth. That's that wheel.
1: That's the sword. You're exactly right. Yeah, I can't go on. I've kept you longer than I should. But there are various censures we can talk about privately if you want to. But let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for King Jesus, the government that He's appointed, and His rule that's exercised through His officers and laws and censures. Please prepare us now for worship this great privilege that we enjoy as the gathered people of Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His name. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.com.